So, like, I go hiking now. <laughs> Ooh, all right. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about it yet. <laughs> Just even, like, going into REI was very weird. I was like, wow, I've never seen so many rich white people at one time. <laughs> <laughs> You, so you have this reaction too. like, I've noticed I change, we started going to this other grocery store that's like different section of town that I, I just feel more comfortable there. It's more my people, I feel like, versus <laughs> like the rich upscale people. Yes. I feel more comfortable there, which is weird, but okay. Yeah. So. No, I'm the REI. same way. No. <laughs> and just like, yeah, I, I just am like, I am out of place here. <laughs> Like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I literally, because I was there to buy boots, and I was, I just told the salesperson, like, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I need boots. And so she hooked me up. The first one we went on, I was like, Kyle, I need something easy. I need it to be baby steps easy. And he's like, oh, it'll be good. It was not good. It was horrible. <laughs> so this has uh, puzzled me. Is hiking, like, is there an elevation differential, like, uh, amount that you have to reach before it's like just walking on a path? That's a great question. <laughs> I don't think so, because especially in Texas, like there's so much flat areas that I think you can just, if you're in nature enough, it's a hike. <laughs> <laughs> if you're not on a sidewalk or Essentially, does it yeah. Okay. Essentially, yes. Can't be on a sidewalk at least. <laughs> That's the rule. Okay. But gravel? Gravel, I think counts because like some of the trails were paved, like, or not paved, but they had like big stones yeah okay yeah it sucked like little old ladies were passing me and like tiny children with short legs it was pretty bad <laughs> i wouldn't get hung up on little old ladies going past you because like uh, a lot of them are fit man they're that's all they do i guess <laughs> yeah they've been doing this for a lot long time too also you know like yeah yeah it's not their first rodeo or first hike in this case it just it sucked because the trail was so narrow it was like on these and it was like the steps portion of it that like there wasn't a place to pull over you just had to like go <laughs> and it yeah. sucked so much <laughs> hurry up get out of the way yeah yeah it was rough i don't know we've been a few times since and i really just try to focus on how much copper likes it he's so happy so <laughs> that's yeah. good he loves well, hopefully, it hopefully hopefully you get some enjoyment from it too even if it's just like looking at nature or whatever it's not bad. We listen to a podcast while we're out there, so it's good. Nice. So if you're hiking right now, hi. I hope you're doing okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Take time to enjoy the scenery. Take breaks. Don't get in too many of your elderly hiking friends' way. <laughs> Pull over for them. They have a lot to do. <laughs> oh. Okay. What are we doing today? Uh, today, you are going to be delivering a report to the class. What if I was like, oh, shit, really? <laughs> <laughs> we had homework. Oh, no. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, as we've covered before, we're in more of a co-teaching style now. Uh, and you, the listener, you're the student. That's true. That's true. So, yeah, uh, Christine's going to be delivering to you a, an awesome lesson about Japanese anarchist Ito Noe. So yeah, we're going to talk about Ito Noe. I am going to do my best with pronunciations here. Uh, shout out to japandict.com. <laughs> Did a lot of searches on there. But um, if I mess up, I'm very sorry. I tried. Awesome. No, I mean, yeah, trying's half the battle. From now on, I'm going to be referring to her as Ito in Japan. Her surname would come first. So we're just going to do that. Okay. 
her life we're looking at 1865 to 1923, so kind of a short time period. She is most known for being an anarchist, a social critic, a feminist, and a writer. Most of her writing can be found in the feminist magazine Seito, uh, which is spelled S-E-I-T-O. And she was briefly the editor-in-chief of that magazine. But before we dive too much further in, I want to give some historical context because I, going into this, knew, like, nothing about Japanese history, like, at all. Yeah. (laughs) And I don't know if any of our other listeners are in a similar boat. So I thought it might be helpful to kind of set up the scene, so to speak, of, like, the conditions she's in. All right. Good idea. So we're going to start with the Meiji era of Japan. That's spelled M-E-I-J-I. Do you already know about this? (laughs) I know a little bit, yeah. It was an era of, like, modernization. Mm Mm-hmm, definitely. Uh, The Meiji emperor, I know he had something, like, with his chin, so he grew out a beard. I know that about him. (laughs) I did not see that, but Uh, that's good to know. Please tell me about this man's chin. uh, He had mandibular protrusion... From genetic diseases, so he just had a, a protruding chin, you know, quite far forward. And so he grew out a beard to, to cover that up. Huh, interesting. That's one thing I know about. That's not definitive of the era. That's just I was reading one day. No, that's it. <laughs> okay, so this is the period between 1868 to 1912. And you're right, it is very much marked by modernization. Um, there is an influx of Western material in terms of philosophy, politics, um, legal thought, aesthetics, all kinds of stuff. I also kind of view this as a study in sub-imperialism because I, in my interpretation of it, I think Japan was like looking around and being like, all right, we got to prove to the West to like not fuck with us. So we're going to do a little bit of colonization. We're going to do some industrialization and just like beef that shit up. That's a good analysis. They're trying to catch up basically with the West so that they're not getting pushed around. Yes, that's how I would characterize it. So you have a move from like the feudalist system with like shoguns, that kind of system of government to a slightly more democratic system. I say slightly because you still have nobles, but you also have an elected like legislative body, but you also have to have like tax qualifications in order to vote. So like very small steps. Okay. Yeah. And and that's, you know, that's similar to the development of democratic institutions in in europe as, as mm-hmm. well and and in the united states you know yeah. let's be honest at the same time though you did still have an effort to instill the emperor with more power at the very least culturally there was a big emphasis on shinto becoming the state religion there was also something called the kuktai and that's spelled k-o-k-u-t-a-i I think of this as roughly translating to nationalism. I'm going to read some other synonyms that the article I was reading gave it, just in case I'm like totally off base here in my analysis. But it includes the national body slash structure of state, system of government, sovereignty, national identity, essence and character, the body politic, the national entity, like very similar phrases, right? Yeah, I think in... The United States, we call this the national interest, right? Mm, That's a good way to put it. In true dialectical fashion, the way I best understood this is when I learned another term called seitai, which is S-E-I-T-A-I, and that is more about their government structure. So 
I kind of put this in my head as Kakatai is more, you know, think Declaration of Independence. Here's what we're about. Here's our character. Here's what we're into. And the Seitai is maybe more the constitution of like, here's how we do things. Mm, okay, that makes sense. These aren't documents. I'm just using that as like an example. Yeah, yeah, got it. This term comes from Neo-Confucianism. Um, it also bolstered the emperor's image and emphasized his divine lineage. Um, he's very much seen as like the head of the family and the family is Japan. And that's like their whole deal. All right. So very patriarchal. Definitely. Definitely. There's also something in this period that I want to briefly touch on because I think it provides some context to later events that we're going to talk about is the high treason incident. Hmm. Uh, doesn't sound good. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's the plot to assassinate the emperor by a socialist anarchist in 1910. Okay. Uh, I mean, it's an emperor. You got to imagine they weren't all about him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> We've all been there. We've all like emperor. <laughs> We've all considered oh. assassinating an emperor, right? <laughs> uh, we can say that because there's no more emperors, yeah, right? Yeah, that's why we have any more emperors. And no one would care if you wanted to assassinate an emperor now. Who is an emperor? Anyway? I don't think yeah. we have any, right? Listeners, correct us Apologies if you know to all you emperors out there <laughs> who are listening to our podcast. You feel very unsafe now. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so the story of this is the police finds bomb-making materials in an employee of a lumber mill. A guy's name is Miyashita Takishi. Um, they find it in his room. And they investigate, and they're like, all right, we're going to investigate his wife and his friends and just go ahead and arrest them and figure this out. But things get out of hand, and 26 people in total get arrested. Um, okay. All right. <laughs> Was this, this... I don't know. That sounds suspicious. Like, hey, this one, we caught this one guy. Can we go after like these other guys we don't like? Is that what they were doing? Essentially, yeah. They used it as an excuse to just round up dissidents in general. Their evidence was super circumstantial. And reports kind of differed between what I was reading, but probably only four to six of the people accused actually had anything to do with the plot. The rest were just like, let's get them. Yeah, they just, they'd happen to be affiliated in some way and also a nuisance to the government or something yeah yeah they're mostly leftists classic yeah yeah and it doesn't get any better out of the 26 arrested 12 were executed 11 were given life in prison and the remaining two defendants got eight years and 11 years respectively for violating explosives ordinances man uh, so they really threw the book at these guys. They did. They absolutely did. So I'm including this for a reason. If you're like, hey, Ito's not in this at all, we'll come back to it. <laughs> okay. But that's sort of what was going on. That's the climate we're dealing on with. On the left, I guess the relationship between the left and the government. Exactly. Okay. All right. Next era. Who this? This is the Taisho era of Japan. You have a larger emphasis on some of those democratic systems. Um, you have more parties and you have kind of liberalization happening. You get more socialist and anarchist movements as well as they start to break away from the liberal parties. Like, eh, we want to do our own thing. Remember that industrialization they were doing? Mm -hmm. Because they are doing that. And you also have the Russian Revolution popping off. 
people are now more interested in labor movements. They're like, ooh, we need to figure this out. (laughs) Nice. I like that. Yeah, overall, people were just like pretty dissatisfied with the system. There was a big movement um, agitating for universal male suffrage, just pretty much everyone on the left, you know, students and colleges and journalists, stuff like that. But it leads to a very bad law, which is called the Peace Preservation Law of 1925. Uh, uh, I mean, that sounds, <laughs> it's, a, it's one of those laws where it sounds nice and is going to be bad. They, they, yeah, they had a good marketing meeting about the title. <laughs> uh, let me guess. It's not really mostly about peace. Eh, it depends on your definition. <laughs> so this law forbade anyone who opposed the Kukatai or the abolishment of private property. It's just illegal to be socialist now. Damn. All right. Well, <laughs> yeah, they went for the jugular. They really did. <laughs> and they established a basically a secret police called the Toko, and they investigate these groups, and more than 70,000 people end up being arrested between 1925 and its eventual repeal in 1945. Not good. Not, I'm not a fan of that law. <laughs> Here's the kicker. They pass this in tandem with the universal suffrage law. Oh. <laughs> They're like, uh, we'll so give you So you guys want to vote, huh? Well. <laughs> they were, I think scared that too many people would vote for socialists and so they're like uh no we can't have that (laughs) this is sort of the problem with reformism right is if it can really make a difference they're just going to make it illegal (laughs) yeah yeah it's one step forward two steps back (laughs) yeah all right if you're wondering hey christine you already told me when ito is born and dies this is after she dies this was in the works like long before that like they were already had been uh proposing it for a few years. And also this just kind of reflects the general climate. It's like this law got passed, guys. <laughs> so Yeah, so clearly when she's around doing her work, the government was looking around like, hey, this we gotta do something about these leftists, basically. Yeah. You have intense surveillance by the Taco. You have labor unions just being plain outlawed. You have a lot of social unrest, and you have the start of Japanese feminism in this time period. All right, so lots of uh, lots of forces at play. How does Ito fit into all this? Let's get into it. She is born on Kyushu, which is near Fukuoka, on January twenty first, eighteen ninety five. It's a very small fishing village, which we will talk about later in some of her writings. She did well in school, but her parents couldn't afford any further education, so she took a job for the local post office until she persuaded an uncle to pay for her education in Tokyo. But her parents were like, hey, we like kind of need your money to survive. Like, could you please stay? And she was like, no, I'm going to (laughs) go. So um, her little sister actually quit school to help support their parents. I mean, was she coming from money or didn't sound like it? No, no, she's characterized by others as kind of a a country girl okay yeah um she goes to the ueno girls school in tokyo and does really well Uh, but in the meantime her parents arranged for her to marry a boy from her hometown who just got back from the united states and like was doing really well and would pay for the rest of her school Uh, but she was like oh this sucks like i don't want to do that she agreed but um Apparently, she had already fallen in love with her English teacher, who is named Suji Jun. Yeah, it's it's a weird situation. 
All right. Yeah. And to, you know, to give historical context, I guess that was probably not as strange age gap wise back then. Nowadays, of course, we look back and we're like, mm. but yeah, it's not great. All right. What well, he was born in 1884. Ooh, yeah. So he's like nine years older. It's not terrible, but not great. Yeah. Well, I just also, if he was her teacher, that's also, yeah, that's also bad. <laughs> not recommended. Okay. Anyway. So she goes home, reluctantly marries this dude and almost immediately runs away from home, which was illegal. You were not allowed to do that. Wow. Oh, so she did marry the arranged marriage guy. She did. She did. Okay. But she ran away, runs away to um, June's apartment in Tokyo. She writes a lot about this later in some of her autobiographical work, which is essentially very thinly veiled autobiographical stuff. Like she just changes names and it's like, here it is. So <laughs> Classic. June gets fired for his relationship. I would say rightly so. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> and he encourages her to continue her studies and, you know, do some writing and actually introduces her to the magazine Seito. All right. So Seito is a translation for the term blue stocking. That term goes back to like the early 1740s in England, which was basically a literary group for fancy ladies who couldn't go to university yet because it was 1740. Mm -hmm. The term blue stocking comes from like black stockings were fancy and blue stockings were casual. So they'd be like, oh, just show up in your blue stockings. We're chill. Yeah, there was apparently this guy who like was too poor to show up in the fancy people clothes because like men and women could go to this. So he just showed up in his you know, commoner blue <laughs> stockings. And they were like, oh, cool. Yeah, let's be chill, you know. Uh, and I guess it, there was a thing like all the fancy ladies and stuff, they had to just like play bridge and dance. And they were like, these parties are not even fun. You know, we'd rather talk about interesting things that we have learned about and, and, and read and stuff. So that's that was their, it was kind of like a proto-feminist sort of thing. Yeah, definitely. They were just like trying to, start an intellectual movement within their society. So Ito's group appears to be its own organization, not like really affiliated with this like old English thing. And it is primarily centered around the magazine, which is mostly made up of upper class Tokyo women, with the exception of Ito, who is um, a little more uh, from the countryside. So she finds this magazine. She like falls in love with it immediately. She writes to the editor for like advice. You know, at this time, she's starting the divorce process with her first husband. Um, so she's just like chatting up this lady, just like, hey, what's up? And she gets a job and starts writing for them. Teito had a lot of critics. She was just like immediately writing rebuttals to them. Just like, hey, fuck you guys. <laughs> <laughs> so she jumped right into the comment section. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it <laughs> it escalates. She becomes the fucking editor in chief when she's only 20 years old. Oh, wow. All right. I could not run a magazine at 20 years old. Jesus Christ. <laughs> so she contributes 61 pieces. She writes about a lot of things that like you were not supposed to write about at that time. Things like abortion, prostitution, free love, motherhood, sexual pleasure, particularly about women's sexual pleasure and is staunchly anti-arranged marriage. Can't imagine why. Some of those sound, okay, I get it, pretty taboo, especially for that time. <laughs> Not, a, you know, we have such a libertine society now. We'd be fine with it. But 
even so, like polite society would still be kind of like, yeah, about some of those topics. Yeah, some even today. Some of them sound kind of tame, though. Motherhood, that's like, okay. But I guess maybe like a questionable view of it, like who even wants motherhood or is motherhood what everything's about, you know? Yeah, I didn't see any of her readings or writings, I guess, that were specifically about motherhood. But yeah, I'm curious what her view on it. She ends up having like seven kids. So, I mean, I don't think she hated it. Maybe she hated it and just kept doing it. But like, I don't know. (laughs) Well, it doesn't have to be that, but... I think any sort of complicated view of it that's that's not like motherhood is great for the state and for advancing the empire. Like anything short of that is pretty it's going to be controversial, right? Yeah, yeah, and especially in this time period because you have that rise in industrialism, like Japan needed more workers and soldiers, so they're like please have babies. Like I would love that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so cool. So she was uh not holding back, shall we say? Not at all. And, you know, current climate, you have a system in which, like, the lowest male family member has more legal power than any woman in the family. It's just a super patriarchal system at the time. Adultery is a two-year offense punishable by prison. Abortion is criminalized. Divorce is legal, but extremely socially shameful. So, yeah, people were not chill about this. And she kept going. She pushed the magazine to become even more radical. One very famous cover of hers, she publishes what she called an anti-manifesto on the cover. Instead of using an image, it's just all typography. It says basically, like, we're going to accept entries from any women who want to contribute. Doesn't matter where you come from. We're just going to take them. Like, this is very, like, anti-hierarchical, very pro-anarchist kind of. I mean, it's a manifesto, but she calls it anti, I guess, to be funny. I don't know. (laughs) Well, if she's saying she's accepting everyone, maybe it's kind of like we're, we're we're not going to keep people in or kick people out, like, right? So, like you're saying, not hierarchical, but also not necessarily for something. Like a manifesto would be, we are going to do only pr- promote this, but... Like, even that is too dogmatic for her, having a manifesto. I rather like our manifesto, so I don't know if I would go that far, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's a good one, Yeah. I'm into it. (laughs) Um, The government was not into it. Oh, they're losers. So (laughs) they are. They are. They banned five issues of Seito for varying reasons. Some of them is like, oh, you talked about abortion or oh, you talked about prostitution. One of them was just because they wrote like an erotic short story, like about a woman who enjoys sex. And I think it was like with her husband, too. And I was like, all right, chill. Like, where do you think those babies are coming from? (laughs) Some guy got too horny reading that, or I don't know. <laughs> yeah, inappropriate. She would translate and publish works from Emma Goldman and Kropotkin, friends of the show. I did a little bit of background reading in like the spread of anarchist thinking and stuff in Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kropotkin, he was a he was like one of the big deals there, right? He had a big influence. Definitely, yeah. And I would say Goldman, too. Like, Ito was a big fan. She actually met her at an anarchist meeting in 1913. So, like, she was very cool. Super cool. Yeah. Yeah. She was, you know, harassed and surveilled by the police for her views. It was, it was definitely, these were some brave stances to take at the time. But I think she's a very interesting figure because I, I went through a few of her writings. In particular, I reference this book called The Blue Stockings of Japan, New Woman Essays and Fiction from Seito by Jan Bardsley. I found it off of a Reddit thread and it was like scanned pages of a book. So 
Nice. <laughs> yeah. Thanks to the people of Reddit for that. <laughs> but the way she writes and argues is like she's simultaneously very ambitious and fiery and like, here's the deal, you know, like she's very, she goes for it, right? But she's also super insecure. <laughs> and I don't know if it's just like a translation thing. I don't know if it's just like there's a level of politeness at the time in writing, but multiple times in her editor's notes, she would apologize for the poor quality of the magazine and promise to do better next time, which I'm like, I don't care how shitty it is. I'm not going to be like, hey, this is shitty. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Let people call you out for it. Yeah. I mean, she's 20 years old, so I, I don't know how much of that is just insecurity, but also like people, I feel like, aged faster back in the day. You know, like you had to grow up very quickly. I think some of it is how other members treated her. Like some of the other blue stockings considered her too rustic for the job um, because yeah. she did come from the countryside. And I think she was pretty insecure about that. But it, it's complicated because she did struggle. Like she couldn't get advertising and was just generally overwhelmed by the work. She was also having a ton of personal problems. She was like super poor. She was pregnant. Freaking June starts cheating on her with another student. <laughs> oh, okay. And then her cousin... He's just a good guy, right? Yeah, cool. Oh, wow. Okay. I thought you were going to bring up another problem, like, oh, also her cousin had this problem. No, no. Oh, okay. Wow. What a guy, this June guy. <laughs> this June guy just sucks. And the government was not helping either. You know, they banned some issues, but they also prevented their distributors from carrying the magazine. So they, like, couldn't get any money. Like, they were broke. And add to that. World War One increased the cost of paper and ink. So all of that shitstorm results in the shutting down of Seato in 1916, which, like, yeah, is not a long time for her tenure. Yeah, she, I mean, sounds like she tried, uh, you know, and, and put out some fire stuff. It's just a confluence of lots of shit. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I think it was just an extremely unfriendly climate for leftists and for women at the time. Like, I think she just had a lot of cards stacked against her. So did she start doing, like, underground shit? Like, okay, I'm going to do, you know, like a lot of the other guys, they start doing pamphlets and stuff. <laughs> so she keeps writing, um, and she manages to publish it in some leftist papers around. I'm not sure how underground those papers were. I imagine they'd have to be a little bit considering yeah. those laws that were going on. Yeah. I think the government was like banning parties left and right. Like as soon as you got too many people, <laughs> boom, ban. Nope. Can't do it. So she keeps going, but she also meets a new guy. So let's talk about this guy. New guy. New guy. This is Asugi Sakai. Uh, that's O-S-U-G-I-S-A-K-A-E in case I'm totally butchering that. So she becomes involved with him in 1916 and this guy is a radical anarchist. He also does a lot of translating and publishing of other people's like anarchist works. He is actually arrested in something called the Red Flag Incident, which was a political rally um, that the police just like arrested people. <laughs> there were too many red flags. And so they... Too many anarcho-communists, really. Ah, okay. Yeah, that can be a problem, you know? We're, <laughs> we're too cool in too big a numbers. That's what it is. He's like, oh, there's too many hot cool, smart people here. It's dangerous. <laughs> You're causing all kinds of wrecks because everyone's like rubbernecking. <laughs> so he got in prison for two years, which ends up being kind of a good thing because that means he wasn't available to be swept up in that high treason incident. He was like 
out of commission. Uh, <laughs> so he didn't get executed. So That's a really good alibi. <laughs> I was already in prison. <laughs> you guys already got me. <laughs> yeah, and, you, and then you can freely say, like, I'm, you know, I, I, I would have. Yeah, I totally would have. I, I was I in prison. <laughs> Well, like there at at that time you couldn't have said that, but no, they would add to your sentence then. <laughs> yeah. So much like our guy last week, Jack Reed, I almost called him Warren Beatty. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if Warren Beatty did this, but the other guys they believed in free love, and ah. so did Asuki. He was already married, and he started pursuing not one member of the Blue Stockings, but two. One of which is Ito. <laughs> Okay, so a little bit of a player. But, I mean, he's saying, no, I'm not being a player. I'm just being a free love person. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay. Polyamory. Bold move to go for two women who work at the same newspaper, but, you know, <laughs> go for it, I guess. If everyone's yeah. on board. Um, the problem is they weren't on board. Ah. <laughs> okay. How did this work out? First off, Ito and uh, Asugi meet at a Seito lecture meeting. Um, he's impressed by her translation of Emma Goldman, which, like, who wouldn't be? Yeah. He's also impressed because Seito is criticizing the police for banning his own socialist newspaper. So he's like, hey, thanks for being on my side. <laughs> yeah. So they start romancing, and it doesn't go well. The two women argue over him, and it culminates in Ito and Asugi are at a cabin i think for vacation and the other woman ichiko comes in stabs osugi several times in the throat oh he is hospitalized his wife not one of the other women there but she just is like i'm i'm gonna leave this man like i'm done <laughs> which he's I dating two other women <laughs> and he just got stabbed over it so like yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna peace out fair enough so like okay sorry literally none of the women in his life were also trying to be polyamorous it was just him I think Ito claimed to believe in free love, too, but I don't think she ever, like, acted on it. I mean, she was also married to Jun. She was still married at the time. Okay. And she never ends up marrying Osugi. They just have kids together. But she lives with them the rest of her life. Like, I, I don't have any evidence of her, like, romancing additional people, but she doesn't really care, I think, about, like, marriage. Yeah, I'm a, this inadvisable uh, <laughs> to go the Osugi route. Yeah, yeah, I, again, bold move, because, like, these women definitely knew each other and hung out, so, like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so his wife leaves him. On the toast days, Ichiko's like, I'm done, too. Uh, actually, she gets thrown in prison, so, like, she's she's out of the running. Sort of <laughs> stabbed somebody, fair enough. <laughs> you did stab someone in the throat several times. But Ito stays, they end up having five children together. She had two children with Jun, so seven kids total. She continues believing and kind of practicing anarchism. She advocates for something called the everyday practice of anarchism. She thinks that people should find ways to undermine the kaktai, even if they're small. And I think this is really reflective of her own biography and her own, like, writing about her life, because she often frames her decisions as very political she writes a lot about arranged marriages and how she escaped hers and how it was a very difficult process, but she does it in a way that's like, this is what we got to do. Like, this is, this is me taking a stand. This is what all women should do. So, and that's, I guess I was kind of wondering in what sense were her works like anarchist, if they weren't saying like, 
let's take down the government or whatever, <laughs> you know, like what is she doing to, to promote anarchism? But you're saying it was more of a, more of a, how you live out your, what personal decisions you make, I guess. For the most part, I think it kind of shifts the stuff that I found that was in Seito, I think maybe because it was more targeted towards women was about that stuff of like, here's, here's the path of the new woman. And here's what that means. And, it, it's very poetic writing, I would say. She does have a writing later that is super anarchist, but we'll get to that later. So yeah, it's kind of a mixed bag. Most of it, I would say, is is more of that poetic, feminist, personal biography stuff, but she does have some other stuff too. Okay, cool. Cool. Now we're going to get to a not cool part of the story called the Canto Massacre. Yeah, that does not, you know, I <laughs> not mean- Not a good name. Don't judge a book by its cover, maybe. Don't judge a massacre by its name. It just doesn't sound good. Anything really called massacre tends not to be good. Unless you're referencing like a new fastest runtime for defeating the Kanto region in Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> like totally massacred that region. I got all yeah. 150, all eight badges done. Still sounds bad. You could probably like workshop the name. Yeah, because it does sound like you killed every single Pokemon you encountered. <laughs> It's just you and your starter at the end. Just grinding, yeah. <laughs> it's level 1000 Venusaur. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag team Bulbasaur. <laughs> yeah, I'd say I'm a team Bulbasaur. Nice. I can't be Squirtle because I love every other water Pokemon, so that's just impractical. Fair Charmander's enough. Charmander's cool. Charmander's probably second choice. Okay, anyway. <laughs> Very important side combo. All right, back to Kanto. Now, this is starts with an earthquake, the Great Kanto Earthquake of 1923. And this is just going to get bad, and it's going to get worse, and then it's going to get way worse. So hold okay. on. We start with a 7.9 magnitude earthquake on the main island of Honshu. Okay. All right. I imagine that was pretty destructive. Yes. It devastated Tokyo, Yokohama, and surrounding areas throughout the region, you have the initial deaths at 142,800 and 40,000 missing or presumed dead. Holy shit. It gets worse. This earthquake happens at lunchtime, so everyone has their stoves on. So you have a lot of fires, and the fires develop into firestorms. You also have the water mains broken because of the earthquake. And then you get a typhoon, which causes the fires to spread. Wow. Everything's on fire. You have landslides just killing entire villages as a result of like the tectonic activity. You have a tsunami from the earthquake, which caused even more damage, leaving 1.9 million people homeless. And finally, throughout all this, you have a typhoid outbreak. And because you have these unsanitary conditions, no water, everyone's on fire, your typhoid outbreak gets worse. That's terrible. That's just apocalyptic. Yeah, definitely. Like, earthquake, everything's on fire, or like typhoon, like what the fuck else could A plague. Like, a plague. Yeah, it's real bad. Horrible. Like, that's already very bad. It gets yeah. worse because the Japanese military and the police and other people look around and they're like, this is pretty chaotic. You know what would really, like, be fine to do right now is some executions. So, <laughs> they were... <laughs> It was like, maybe, we, you know, no one's going to notice if a few more people die. Sort of. They take advantage of existing prejudices and they fuck things up. 
They execute a lot of Koreans. And if you're wondering why Koreans, well, Japan annexed Korea in 1910. Mm. And so they just had like basic racism toward Korean immigrants there? Yes. Yes, basically. Um, I didn't spend a ton of time on this, but like the long version, you know, told short is they wanted to get in the colonization game. Korea's right there. They just did it. It was imperialism. It sucked. You have a huge shift in land ownership in Korea. Um, Native Koreans would have to prove written documentation of ownership. And since like they just didn't have that, it was like, hey, my dad gave me this. Like, what do you want me to do? Um, They would lose their land. For context, by 1932, which again is a bit after this event, uh, Japanese land ownership in Korea was at 52.7% and Japanese people in Korea made up 3% of the population. Whoa. Pretty bad. All right. Yeah. So that's just um, that's just colonizing the place, right? That's the same thing they did in Ireland and stuff. Yeah. Par for the course imperialism. Koreans went from owning their own land to tenants who had to pay half their crop as rent and then huge taxes. They were sending rice during Japan's rice shortage in 1918, um, which meant they had less food to eat. Basically, there is a long and very complicated history of relations between Japan and Korea. Imagine that. But just know that, like, it's pretty fucked up. Yes. All right, back to the story. You have Korean laborers in Yokohama, and they were part of a stevedore union. And this was led by someone named Yamaguchi Seiken. And after the earthquake, like any good, reasonable people would do, they were organizing to provide food and water for the neighborhood. And the police were like, that's socialist, and I don't like it. Whoa, so they just (laughs) went after them for helping people in a disaster? Yup. Now, the police chief, according to, like, official records, only admitted to saying he gave district chiefs permission to deal with the emergency situation. Um, And didn't give any more (laughs) details than that. Yeah, he basically was like, do martial law, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Deal with it. Yeah, and they dealt with it in the worst possible manner because police began feeding citizens false information like, it's now permissible to kill any Koreans. What? (laughs) Even if you hear that from the police, who Wouldn't you be like, why? (laughs) Yeah, what the hell? Yeah, so they're spreading all these false rumors. They're saying, oh, uh, there's some Koreans over there. I saw them with a list of neighborhoods to burn. They have gasoline. They're trying to poison the water and the food supply. They're, you know, sexually assaulting Japanese women. They're just spreading and feeding into all this racial hate. Yeah, oh my goodness, okay. So this leads to some vigilante mobs, some of which were organized by the police. Well, they're only a short step away from a vigilante mob anyway. So. <laughs> yeah, potato, potato. <laughs> and they end up killing Koreans and Chinese people and basically any minority groups because they would go around and they would basically do like a shibboleth. They'd be like, hey, say this phrase. And if they determined that that person had an accent and wasn't saying it correctly, they'd be like, all right, you're a foreigner. And they'd kill them. Wow. That's insane. How many people did they kill in these pogroms? The estimated death toll is between 6,000 and 9,000. In addition to the horrors that just been visited upon them, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's wild. So I, I, I thought some of this was very reflective of current times. Like, apparently the, the home ministry, which I think is kind of like an equivalent of a cabinet-level office, said, 
you know, there's a group of people who are going to want to take advantage of the disaster, you know, watch out for those Koreans. They're definitely like planning for terrorism and robbery by arson and bombs. And it's like, if anyone's taking advantage of the situation, it's you guys like, yeah. calm the fuck down. What the, they that's literally what they're doing. That's crazy. You even had people like trying to hide in police stations, but then like, I mean, the police were the ones doing this. So they would either hand them over to the mob or the mob would break in. Yeah, don't worry. You came to the right place. Exactly. (laughs) All right. That sucks. And eventually, this turns to violence against leftists. Well, why not? You're already going after (laughs) everyone that you hate, so... Yeah, while we're here, let's just be efficient with our time. (laughs) So they use the civil unrest as an excuse to abduct and kill union leaders, union members, and any other dissidents. Yamaguchi, the union leader, was arrested... He was sentenced to two years in prison because he was redistributing food and water from ruined houses without asking for permission from the owners. Which, who were not there. (laughs) Who might have been killed in the fucking earthquake, for all we know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Insane. That's crazy. And this, unfortunately, is where we get back to our main character, Ito. She is involved in something called the Amakasu Incident. And this is when Ito... Asugi and Asugi's six-year-old nephew are arrested on September 16th by a squad of military police led by Lieutenant Masahiku Amakasu. And they were in the earthquake? It doesn't say where specifically they were at the time, but I imagine they were on the main island and were affected. So sources differ on the exact method of killing, but they are all brutally murdered, thrown in a well, an abandoned well. Ito was 28 years old at the time of her death, and... The lieutenant ends up getting court-martialed and sentenced to 10 years in prison, but only serves three of those years and is released early. Yeah, uh, you know, three years for three people. That's not... (laughs) One per person. That's how humans work. Yep. There you go. Wow. (sighs) Yeah. So you have this huge rash of violence. You know, like, you have a big earthquake. Sure, that, like, takes out a lot of people. But, like, like we said, 6,000 people. You also have a cover-up. The police arrests 735 participants in the massacre. They're like, oh, look, we got them. But they didn't sentence them very harshly at all. In fact, there were reports of like kind of joking around during the trials and like super light sentences being recommended by the prosecution. It it didn't fucking matter. They just, they just let them walk pretty much? Pretty much. Koreans who were trying to flee the area were detained so they wouldn't spread news of the massacre abroad. In fact, Japan was feeding propaganda videos to Korea, I remember, their imperial colony, trying to show like propaganda videos of like, oh, actually, we really banded together during this challenging time. And they would show like Japanese citizens standing up for like Koreans being confronted by mobs, which like, I don't know, maybe that happened. But like, what the fuck? That's not the main story here. Right? Like... Move to peaceful Japan where your friendly neighbor will protect you from the mobs of your asshole neighbors. <laughs> yeah, like, right. Even that story is still not a good story. Yeah. Ugh. Like, so wait, hold on. I got to move to a place where <laughs> one out of a hundred people is good. <laughs> yeah, great point. Great point. That just doesn't make sense. They try to blame Yamaguchi, that union guy. They think he and the Koreans were the ones rioting. Um, and they're the real cause of the, the violence. Newspapers were banned from reporting the death count, including blocking newspapers in Korea. And that death count was uh, super inaccurate. The official reports only claimed, you want to guess? 
How many people killed? 20,000 people. No, this isn't the massacre specifically, not the earthquake. Oh, in the massacre. Uh, let's say we killed 300 people. Five. Five people? <laughs> Singular, five. No five zero, just five. So we're talking like Boston massacre levels of massacre? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. People burned bodies to destroy evidence. Police just like weren't responding to murder reports or anything. They're just like, I don't know, like I don't fucking care. And between 50 to 90% of the Korean population in Yokohama were killed. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Uh, and so Itonoe was killed in that, in, the, in that massacre part. Yep. Wow. And then they just go and try to deny it. Yeah. Yeah. And apparently this is still like a, a popular talking point for the right wing in Japan today. Like it's kind of like a Holocaust denial thing. Like it's that's what they do. They say, yeah, nobody. Very few people were killed in them. In the massacres? Is that what? Yeah, yeah. It's it's like, that's a popular stance for the right wing. I mean, I don't know how far, right? But I imagine pretty far. You would, you would hope. <laughs> Hopefully. But still, shitty. Very shitty. A very sad ending to a very short life. To delve more into that life, let's take a look at the readings you were talking about. Yes. Okay. So I've pulled three readings for us. The first is called The Path of the New Woman. This is an essay from January 1913. This was written in response to the people who viewed the blue stockings as like selfish or frivolous, just like, oh, that's just those literary women over there just dicking around. But she says, no, we're actually groundbreaking pioneers. We're on this like mythic pilgrimage and that one day every woman will follow in these steps. It's extremely poetic and like epic sounding. Like I was reading mm -hmm. it, I'm like, this is this is basically poetry. There's no specific policy points or anything. Um, it's very open to interpretation. I don't know. I'll, I'll read a little bit. All the while the pioneer struggles to open the new way, she denies herself even the smallest of worldly comforts. From the beginning to end, she is alone, and every second is one of hardship. There is torment. There is fear. At times, even she feels overcome with deep despair. Uh, I feel like we've all felt that somewhat on the left, right? <laughs> That's true. Men, women, people That's of any true. gender, really. Oh, yeah, yeah. Honestly, it felt a little self-aggrandizing and emo. <laughs> well, she was 20-something writing that, right? She was 17 when she wrote that, so like right on the money. All right, yeah. I wrote some bullshit when I was 17. <laughs> I'm not saying it's totally bullshit, though. I no. mean, I guess what I'm saying is she, I think that ties back into her idea of like the personal is political and trying to maybe put that in a lens for this magazine that's mostly aimed at upper class women to say, here's, here's how you can move us forward. And if you don't do this, like, she talks a lot of shit about like women who aren't on board with this, like, Ugh, you're gonna come back and benefit from this later, but you're not even gonna like, be on board with it now, like, that kind of stuff. That makes sense, too. Because as an outreach thing, because like, you don't want to be like, you have to be working in a factory, or you have to be out on strike to the upper class people who like, <laughs> can't, you know, so like getting them to identify, you know, how you feel kind of shitty about society, how you feel kind of alienated from it and all that, that's related to our struggle. Like, that means you should side with us, right? That's 
kind of how I viewed it. Like in her more autobiographical stuff, like I read one, I read the one where she is going back home to meet her arranged fiance. And it was super fucking sad. Like you felt terrible for this character. And it's a very like emotional writing style. And I think she does a good job of maybe displaying these things that are seen as just societally acceptable, like arranged marriage in a very like torturous way where you're like, how could someone do that? You know? So making people viscerally feel the the pain that these things that we kind of turn and look the other way actually inflict on people? I think so. I, I think it, it's definitely feminist in that way of like, hey, let's maybe reconsider how we look at women, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. This is okay. not cool. Next up, she debates the issue of prostitution. It's a mixed bag. I'm going to go ahead and tell you that now. You know, product of the times. <laughs> there are, yeah, there are to this day very different camps on the left oh, yeah. about this issue. Yes. So at the time, she was debating, you know, writing pieces back and forth with a well-known socialist feminist critic named Yamakawa Kikue. To set this up, at the time, you had these Japanese groups of women, mostly upper class, lobbying against the use of a geisha dance at the Taisho Emperor's Ascension Ceremony. They're like, hey, this makes us look bad. Um, They also want to abolish licensed prostitution in geisha houses. Um, And they often would pair those demands with the cause of women's suffrage, being like, hey, this this isn't a good look, basically. Ito writes an essay. The title says it all. (laughs) The name of it is Arrogant, narrow-minded, half-baked Japanese women's public service activities. Oh, my goodness. Okay. She goes off on them. (laughs) Uh, This is in 1915. She mostly accuses these women's groups of using prostitution to lower other people's social status in order to raise theirs. She's like, you're looking down on these women. You're only focused on licensed prostitution instead of unlicensed prostitution because you're mostly worried about how you're being perceived by the West. And Uto's like, I mean, unlicensed prostitution is probably spreading more venereal disease. So like, maybe we should figure that out. The best points for me is she encourages like analyzing the cause and the power structures involved, like poverty and education being like, hey, like maybe we have a bigger problem on our hands than just prostitution, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Addressing the actual social causes versus the symptoms? Yes. Okay. I mean, she's not perfect. She still views sex work overall as negative and, you know, blames it on like men's inherent needs and like, you know, says some kind of fucked up shit about it. You're like, okay, not great. But I think she does a pretty good job of some class analysis in that she's like, hey, like, why do you think all these women, like, yeah, sure, some of those women maybe want to be prostitutes, but like, why do you think so many are turning to this? Is it because maybe they don't have a lot of opportunities? Like, okay. Uh, Do you know what was the counterpoint? Because who she Mm -hmm. was arguing with was a socialist. So what was was her argument about, I guess, uh, she was saying abolish prostitution right the other person so her opponent agrees that like hey these these are conservative wealthy women and their real motivation is like not great you know she also thinks they're vain and shitty and stuff like that but 
she argues against licensed prostitution, which she defines more despicable than unlicensed prostitution. She kind of makes the argument that all women are in a form of prostitution because like how marriage works at the time and that it's all bad. That sounds, that's echoes of the manifesto or of right. The whole, like you, you know, the communists want to hold the women in common. And then he's like, actually the capitalists do, you know, the opponent Kikue, she's calling for like, Hey, the state should be providing financial support, education and job training. So like, you know, these women can find other jobs and in, in, instead of the low to wage work that causes them to be prostitutes in the first place, you know, we have to reform education, we have to reform sex education. So like, there's some good points in there. But again, I, I think overall, it's still a pretty negative slant on sex work in general. But like, again, you're working with what 1913, we said, like, I, I get it. Yeah, I understand. I guess that the discourse is in a different place. Mm-hmm. It does sound like the colonel that they both share is kind of like there's something else besides the sex work we should be focused on. Right. Mm-hmm. That, that if we can fix that, it'll fix this. Uh, it'll, it'll provide a better society for people, uh, a less desperate one. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, and it's an interesting and kind of frustrating argument to read back and forth because they agree with each other on a lot of things. I think it turns into more of a philosophical debate because like, Ito said initially, like, oh, it's kind of inevitable that that prostitution will exist and that men will have these needs. And, like, Kikyoe is like, no, we can, like, change that system. So it turns into, like, kind of a weird, like, metaphysical debate on society. Mm, and yeah. I also was very frustrated with Ito because, again, she's very apologetic. <laughs> she's always like, oh, you're totally right. Like, I'm sorry. Like, I still think this, but like, she spends a lot of time like bending over backwards to accommodate this other person. And at the end, takes a super personal stance of like, well, I'm very busy with my family. So like, I don't have time to educate you. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's a good ending. (laughs) Got better shit to do. Bye. (laughs) See you later. (laughs) I, I think in general, I wish she would be a little more involved and a little less poetic. Like, that's my review of some of her writing in general. Okay. More involved, you mean, in in her lifestyle? Maybe organizing, or I'm sure that was very difficult, though, at the time. Like, you have all these, like, I, I bet it's very difficult as a woman in early 1900s Japan to, like, do that. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. All right, so this last one is called The Facts of Anarchy. You can find it on... The Anarchist Library. Just give you Toa Noe a search there. It pops up. All right. The Facts of Anarchy. I like it. Just the facts, ma'am. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. We don't want any bias here. It's only facts because it's super short. That's why it's so short. <laughs> <laughs> it takes like two minutes to read. What'd you think? This is very nice. I want to live <laughs> in one of these villages. It sounds pretty rad. I mean, but with modern stuff. I want to live in this village, but with nice things. <laughs> with a laptop. Yeah. With a Netflix account. <laughs> All right. So this is from 1921. So later in her life, um, this is published in the labor movement. She is describing her native village, which remember is a small fishing village, um, basically as an example of anarcho-communism. And it sounds pretty fucking rad. It'd be definitely something that I would be more interested in practicing uh, on the other side of communism. Like, I don't know, like bringing about 
Replicators? <laughs> yeah, because, like, it seems um, very harsh when things are not going well. You know, it seems very, like, it could be very Spartan. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is a small, and a small fishing village is probably not super prosperous. Yeah. So she describes it as 60 to 70 houses, which are divided into six federated associations. So it's like, it's like free association, and they all are assisting each other when they need to. There's no chain of command. It's just like a, a mutual agreement sort of thing. Which is interesting. I don't know how it ends up being that way. You would imagine like there's some, I guess there's no sort of landlord out there, you know? Yeah, I don't know if it's just like family land or like what, but yeah, I, there's not a lot of context for that, I guess. It's pretty good, though, if that's the case. Yeah, that sounds Lots great. landlords. <laughs> <laughs> so there are village meetings where everyone speaks their mind and is like not afraid to speak up. They kind of make decisions by as a group, which I'm curious as to how that works. Like, do you vote on things or do you just convince everybody? Like, I wasn't super clear on that. Yeah, I mean, she doesn't go into detail. I imagine a majority of some sort. Probably. This part I really liked. She talks about if someone gets sick or has a baby, the village really comes together. They work together to, like, get a doctor over there, to spread the news to the family, to run errands for them and help nurse and provide meals, things like that, which I I see a lot of tweets and stuff where people are like, how the fuck are you supposed to have a child? <laughs> this time like the the atomized family unit is so difficult to to work with for elder care or for having a baby or just being like chronically ill it's just not set up to take care of people in that way it's almost like we're not really supposed to have this sort of a (laughs) this sort of a nuclear family single generation thing yeah yeah it's just it's not sustainable in any way like Fuck no. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I liked this quote. Of course, there will be two or three families out of favor with the members. With respect to helping such families, although the members may speak ill of them or even complain, they will never refuse to help, for they distinguish between their work for the association and their personal antipathies. I really like that, because I think that's a common question when it comes to anarcho-communism. It's like, ah, what if somebody sucks? It's like, like you, you view community almost like a job. Yeah, and I think we revisit this idea a lot on the show is the idea of freedom as relying on having certain responsibilities to people, right? Like it's not freedom from responsibilities. It's freedom within one's responsibilities toward one another. It was a very big idea in The Dispossessed for one, and just we kind of come back to it over and over is that is freeing in some way. Like you were saying about raising children and stuff, like... it's liberating to somebody to know that your community is there for you. And you're not doing all the work yourself. Like, yeah. And so in that context, it's liberating to know that you have those responsibilities to other people. I think in our society where you know that like nobody has your back, the government doesn't have your back, (laughs) like every man for themselves, it's just law of the jungle. You feel put upon by the idea of responsibility to other people because you don't think you would get anything back in return. But like in this context, it would feel good to have responsibilities to other people because you know that's the way that you are able to get those, get that support in return. 
Yeah, it's it's again, I think we talked about this recently, but the idea of the new definition of freedom, like Margaret Atwood writes a lot about that. She she often will talk about the difference between freedom to and freedom from. And this is in terms of individual liberties and women's rights of like, you know, oh, we're protecting women. So like, we're going to outlaw pornography. And it's like, well, that's more of a freedom from that. Like we're, we're getting you, we're, we're sheltering you. Whereas freedom too is all right, women can do whatever they want with their bodies. That again, is on a much more like individual level. But I think to me, that kind of helps me reframe the freedom issue in terms of community too. Cause you can say, yeah, I have freedom to go buy whatever, but I do not have freedom from poverty and disease and all these horrible things. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. All right. She writes about how the village shares admin tasks and if they ever get too overwhelming, they can split it into shifts. I like this note about kind of bureaucracy. Basically after a particular task is done, they dissolve the association. Like there's no just, you know, here's the water committee and here's the whatever committee. It's just like, just do it basically. Yeah, and uh, there's less, like, box checking. There's no one doing anything needlessly either is a thing. I think just before that, she says, um, you know, that everybody basically, no one's coerced. You know, they're all willing to do whatever they want, whatever they need to. They perform their role to follow their conscience. No command or supervision is needed. Because, I mean, if you think about it, right, the reason that you have to have people looking over your shoulder or whatever, (laughs) you know, the middle management people at work and stuff, all that is because like there's parts of your job that you know you don't need to do to do a good job. Or maybe you need, you know, that like your entire job is not really needed. (laughs) So you have to have someone watching you to make sure you do that because on some level, you know, either that part or the whole thing is unnecessary, which wouldn't be the case if you're doing something that's good for you and your community. You would just do it, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's like, a lot of jobs, especially office jobs, are proving you're doing work. And if you're on the management side, making sure they're doing their work. So like, yeah. that's two directions of wasted labor that we could just get rid of. <laughs> right. <laughs> Sorry, in my notes, I wrote, no bureaucracy. When something is done, shut down the committee and the group chat. <laughs> <laughs> just delete it. Yep. No Slack channels. <laughs> no, yeah, no reply all emails. <laughs> She gives an example of, you know, if a couple stole from a certain family um, and the victim had proof and previous knowledge, the victimized family summoned the couple before the association and scolded them. Both the victims and the thieves agreed as a settlement of the matter to the announcement that the couple will be expelled from the assembly if they committed the crime again. So they get a warning. Hey, knock that shit off or we're going to kick you out. And then, yeah, yeah, she gets into getting kicked out of the commune <laughs> expulsion it's a last resort and I, it seems like it's basically unheard of if i'm reading that right yeah i mean it's a small village so it probably didn't happen often and you imagine that even if they have the meeting where it's like you could be expelled you wouldn't imagine one family getting expelled for like one kid right <laughs> repeatedly stealing or what, even if it's a big deal, I mean, you know, they would be like, well, fine, this kid's not in our family anymore. So yeah, it does seem pretty rare. I don't know. It's 
you would imagine explosions would happen more often than never. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is weird. Out of 60 to 70 houses, you're telling me no one's an asshole in there? Okay. <laughs> Could just be also a difference in culture in terms of like the, you know, shame mechanisms and things like that. She's very apologetic as a writer. <laughs> yeah. You could imagine that this would still be very sparingly used in a more widely adopted anarcho-commune sort of thing, right? Like, you wouldn't just want to go kicking people out left and right. No, yeah. I, I think I think the key, which we have also talked about, is the idea of, like, you're providing enough so that most crimes probably aren't going to happen. You might have the occasional, like, jealous fight or something but like the goal is to eliminate all those crimes of necessity yeah that for sure and that's not really addressed here because they're just kind of working together but it's not they're not really like overcoming they're not doing that step that Engels talks about of um, mankind growing up right of leaving our childhood stage of survival that 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 really like we just skip that Skip that chapter, move on to <laughs> communes. Um, so we're still kind of struggling to survive. And so you can see why people would still steal, I guess. Yeah. But I, I think the idea is that hopefully you wouldn't have to steal because the village is supporting each other. Like, I think I think it's the last, yeah, the last paragraph, I think, sums it up nicely. It says, egoistic urban life is intolerable to those accustomed to village life. Where there is no hope of success besides poverty, it is far more comfortable and warm to support each other under the protection of the association. Wow. Okay. So this is saying like this is a good a good resort because they're poor, right? Like this is why they're doing this is because they have no other resources besides each other. I think so. I think it's that we have to rely on each other. This is our small village. We have you know, X amount of resources. We do not want to go into the city and try to grind that out. So like we just have each other. Yeah. that makes sense too. I guess I vastly prefer the version where we do this and everything's like also nice. (laughs) Also nice. Yeah. 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 Again, this is a very, maybe not pastoral, but a very rural setting for, for this kind of anarcho-communism. And it's not to say that it would be completely stuck there forever. I mean, like, so to give the anarcho-communists a good hearing, the idea would be, like Kropotkin lays out, that you start doing this and then you can just start making advances because you're no longer, like, beating each other up to try to survive. You know? Yeah, and the hope would be, you know, more and more villages do this and you can federate with them, too, and you can get more resources and blah, 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 blah. Uh, Conquest of Bread. Read it. Yeah, there's that one. <laughs> <laughs> but I like this. Yeah, this is definitely my my favorite of her writings. I think it's the most, like, theoretical in both subject matter and tone. Like, it's a lot more straightforward. It's a lot more, I mean, it's the facts, man. She lays it out. Like, the other ones are much more, like, epic kind of stuff, which is, it was fun to read. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) (laughs) But that was also a style at the time, I think, um, a lot of the anarchists and socialists and communists and of the time since they were outlawed uh were writing in this very theoretical way so i don't know if to me that read as like academic but i guess it could also be like poetic and stuff too is to try to avoid like directly saying what if you guys form a labor combination go after the emperor you know like that's a great point like yeah if that shit is illegal or about to be made illegal maybe that's why like okay i'm gonna write 
uh, an autobiographical stuff, but I'm going to change everybody's names. I'm not going to say, hey, women should be able to get abortions, but I'm going to write about it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But this, you know, she very much gets into, and I guess this is also kind of a tame way to put it too, right? It's like- This is already happening? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's just the traditional fishing village. Look at how, you know, how this is kind of already working in practice- And then kind of leaving it to you to imply, like, this could totally happen on a larger scale for all of us, which is kind of good. I mean, that's that's kind of a cool way to to lay it out to people who are especially who are skeptical. Right. About about this project is saying, like, look, like imagine the the uh, the comparison if we could do something like this and say, hey, look, look at your small town America. Like, look how much they do that's socialistic or communistic or anarchistic or whatever. To make a Gilmore Girls reference, Stars Hollow, that's a very community forward kind of show. <laughs> They're not socialistic, <laughs> but they put on they put on events all the fucking time. The economy of that town makes no fucking sense. But I, if you think of it as like everyone just contributes to these events because they want to and it's fun, mm-hmm. then like it's, a little, it's got a little bit of that vibe. <laughs> not nearly to that level. Yeah, but. you'd have to do some work to make it make sense. It's a stretch. <laughs> You could, I feel like you could, you could pull some sort of anarchist vibes, some sort of good anarchist vibes, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but I, I get what she's doing here. It's, it's, uh, and I like it. I'm into it. Sounds great. The urban life line made me think of like an Animal Crossing situation of like just, just ditch it all. <laughs> Come to this made island. Me think of you though. You're a city pig, so. I know. I'm a big city pig. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. This ruralness, maybe not for you. Yeah, I am. I'm a city bitch. But you could translate all this to the city. Yeah, you can. And that's one of the big things Kropotkin talked about, right? Of set up those urban farms, set up all this, you know, take over your park, make it a farm. For sure, for sure. There's a ton (laughs) of green space in like most cities and you can always make more. Knock down your office buildings. Please, (laughs) scare the parking garages. Yes. (laughs) Ugh. And this is why they threw the anarchists in jail to start talking about (laughs) knocking down the office buildings. (laughs) Oh, that's all I got for us today. That was awesome. I feel like I know tons more about Ito Noe, which is to say any amount. So, yeah. (laughs) Well, I I like her story because I think it shows kind of the conflict over time between leftists and a kind of oppressive state government and what that can look like in times of crisis and in times of not crisis. I don't know. I just, I like her as an example of what it would be like to, to come up in that kind of climate. Yeah. It's something we, I guess, take for granted somewhat is our limited, the limited amounts of freedom and whatever that we're allowed (laughs) here to publish such drivel and whatnot you know the cops don't do anything but listen into this hello nsa (laughs) and cia hey guys yeah friends of the show (laughs) you know and i guess we're not getting roughed up now but this is because they don't see us as a threat like (laughs) if 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 they you know if one day they run the numbers and say yeah it's going to be better for us if we if we start jailing leftists and stuff I just, I guess what I mean is like, this is not something unheard of. Like, wow, I'm, I'm way, I'm glad we don't have it that way and could never have it that way in America. Like, I am glad it's not that way currently. Yeah. It's like, cool. We don't have a cockatiel, but like we have, and we could again. <laughs> yes. That's the thing is like, 
I take from from her experience that this is what mask off really would be is when they just decide, hey, let's use this opportunity to go kill us some leftists, you know? Yeah, and remember that peace preservation law wasn't passed till like two years after her death. So like, they still did it before that was a law. <laughs> yeah, and I just, you know, I guess I caution listeners to don't don't put it past your government, wherever that is, that the, that they would do things like this in some modern form, maybe, you know, maybe not exactly like that, but something. Yeah, because I think it's very easy to look at this story and be like, well, that's like Imperial Japan. This is right before World War II. Like, obviously, they were jerks or whatever. And like, yeah, they were. But like, the larger point is, we made a lot of parallels to other countries while talking about this, like the idea of like, liberalism being only a little bit of freedom, but with within reason, like that stuff happens everywhere. And is still happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it very much is. So be careful out there, you leftist people. <laughs> be safe. Uh, but do try to uh, thwart the cucktai when you can. Yeah. <laughs> I just like saying cucktai because that's the one word I learned how to pronounce very well. <laughs> <laughs> Publish your ideas. Get out there and organize when you can. Do all those good things. Shout into the void of that's really all you can do. <laughs> Post about it, podcast about it. That's fine. (laughs) Hell yeah. Hey, speaking of good things to do, we've got a fuck ton of money to donate. Oh, hell yeah. We have $1,005 to donate, or I guess it's not donation. What do we call it? Just to give to mutual aid. To contribute, yeah. Contribute. Contribute is our part in doing our part, uh, exercising our responsibility to our community. Hell yeah. On the behalf of our listeners. It's not really our money, per se. Yeah, because this all came from Patreon money, and I think almost everyone is at the $5 level. This is over the course of a year. Actually, a little less than a year, because we actually gave in February right after the ice storm last year. So pretty, pretty good haul, I would say. So yeah, we will be giving to Dallas Liberation Movement. Um, this was formerly called Feed the People Dallas, if you have heard of them. And then also Funky Town Fridge, which is in Fort Worth. So just going to give on back to that DFW area. Yeah. So these guys um, do a lot to combat hunger and try to kind of provide resources, provide mutual aid for the communities uh, that they're in. So the DFW area in general, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Dallas Liberation Movement in particular, um, they do like Narcan, they do... um, helping with Camp Rhonda, food care packages, all kinds of stuff. And then Funky Town Fridge is, I mean, it's Fridge's community pantry in Fort Worth. Uh, so it's good shit. Thank you to all of our listeners for your, uh, for your steady contributions. And if you know anybody else who, you know, you think that they're awesome enough to join you in doing that, we'd, we'd be happy to get their contributions too. So we can, we can give even more next year. Yeah, that would be great. So, find us on patreon it'll be fun you get notes (laughs) okay what are we doing next week uh next week we are going to finally cover uh the (laughs) history of socialist yugoslavia for real this time yeah i've been doing a lot of reading on it and i've i mean i i think i kind of was ready to besides typing it up on a proper computer i'm traveling now so Mm, that was the that was the big hold up but we'll do that next week gotcha cool all right thanks again this was an awesome presentation thank you i hope it was good (laughs) 
<laughs> I it always was. get very nervous, so we'll see. No, it was fantastic, educational, and some great discussion, too. Hopefully our listeners thought the same. <laughs> I hope so. If you have corrections, if you're like Christine, that Japanese pronunciation, terrible. You can tell me. It's cool. Yeah. <laughs> or if you just have more to add, if you're like, here's some more info about that crazy earthquake or something, feel free to write in. For sure. Okay. Well, I will talk to you next week. All right. Catch you then. Bye. Bye. Hey there, comrades. Just jumping in to remind you of all of our social media. We are on Twitter at Teach Communism, Instagram at Teach Me Communism. You can shoot us an email. That's teachmecommunism at gmail.com. Any of those places are good to send us an episode suggestion or a question, anything you think would be useful feedback for us or just your admiration. If you want to admire us in a public manner, and you should, you can go to Apple Podcasts to give us a review. It is the best way to help people find the show. Love when people write and review us. Please do both. We are also on YouTube if that's how you prefer to listen to podcasts, or if you know someone that's the only way they'll listen to podcasts, send them to our page. And we have a Patreon. For five bucks a month, you get access to our notes for each week's episode, including the backlog of notes, which is a very handy resource for up-and-coming commies. And at the end of the year, all of the funds from Patreon will be given to local mutual aid in the DFW area. So, ain't going to line our pockets. Finally, we have merch. Check us out at Tee Public. You can find shirts and I believe also stickers and magnets and all kinds of fun stuff with catchphrases from the show or episode art, stuff like that. The link to that store is in the show notes, so check that out. Okay, that's all the internet. Join us next time for another episode of Teach Me Communism, where the class struggle is always in session. Bye, y'all.